Let's pray before we open God's word. Father, thank you for loving us enough to give us the life of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming willingly and obeying the Father in our place when we didn't want to so that you could be our righteousness. You could be our holiness. You could be our obedience when we have none of our own. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving new life and for living inside believers, interceding within us and making us acceptable and understandable and clean in our Father's sight. We love you. Help me now as I open the word, Lord. It's a new environment. It can be distracting. So focus my attention and everyone who listens, whether they're at home or here under these tents, focus our attention on you that we may love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The things we have been singing about were exactly what were at issue for the people who received the book of Hebrews. Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. And consider while you're looking at that, that though we don't know the author of Hebrews, that that will something that has been debated by scholars for a very long time, it is clear that the author of Hebrews was a deeply committed disciple of Jesus who had come out of Judaism. That's why this letter is called Hebrews. It is specifically directed to Jewish Christians who perhaps in the second century have begun to pay a price for their faith. You see, in Judaism, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, everything in the law of Moses had a single simple message, that God Himself was holy, and because He was holy, access to Him was extremely limited. Whether it was their diet or their clothing, whether it was the way they lived in their homes, whether it was the way they worshiped, or most famously of all, first in a tabernacle and later in a temple, the fact that there was within the tabernacle a place called the most holy place, the holy of holies, where only one man was allowed to enter once a year and then only with the sacrifice, whether it was diet or the high priest going into the holy place once a year in a carefully prescribed and mandated way, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures told the people of Israel that God was high, holy, and lifted up, and He could not be approached on anyone's terms. He could only be approached on His own. Judaism and things having to do with Hebrew roots still call out to people across the world. There is an appeal to understanding the rules and following the rules. Every church I've ever been a part of, sadly including this one, has had some people drift into things that have to do with observing the Mosaic law, vainly thinking that not only must they keep it, but that they can. You don't have to go any further than the Ten Commandments alone to know that you cannot ever be pleasing to God apart from grace. There have never been two ways to be saved. It's a common misunderstanding. Some people mistakenly believe that the way you were saved in the Old Testament was to keep the law of Moses, and the way you are saved now since Jesus has come is to simply put your faith in Him. No, that first thing, that first way never worked. The law only shows people their guilt. The law, according to the book of Romans, only shows us our shortcomings and our condemnation. The law can't make you good. It can only show you when you're bad, when you're wrong. 
And for a time, it seems that the people who receive the book of Hebrews, which is more than a letter, a sermon, so if you think I preach long, imagine that the book of Hebrews was once likely a written sermon and feel a little bit better about the length that I take to try to explain the Bible to you. And it has, as a long sermon, a single point, that Jesus is simply better. He's better in every way. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's a better high priest. He makes a better covenant, and he is a better and final sacrifice. In other words, that all the things in the Old Testament that once people like the Pharisees trusted to save them were actually to point them to the only one who could, to Jesus. Make sense so far? And the book of Hebrews was written because Jewish believers, probably in the second century, had paid so much social, financial, and relational cost that they were beginning to think about going back to the old system. And they were told, if you neglect this salvation, if you turn your back on this priest, if you turn your back on this sacrifice, there's no more salvation. No one else is coming. Jesus is not only a superior one in every way, He is God's final message. God spoke to us, the author of Hebrews says in the beginning, in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His own Son. So if you want to understand the book of Hebrews in a phrase, it is simply this, Jesus is better and final. That's it. And the whole letter is a plea to persevere, a plea to hold on to Jesus. That's what ties the whole sermon together. And I would like to invite you to look with me at the book of Hebrews and to plead with you according to Scripture to persevere. Because nothing good ever came from quitting in a good cause. If God has, by His grace, introduced you to His Son, Jesus, nothing good will ever come. On the contrary, condemnation will come by turning away from Him. And not only will condemnation come from turning away from Him, we're also warned in this passage that if we turn our back on each other, we will suffer as well. Open your Bibles with me, please, if you haven't already. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and look with me in verse 19. You'll notice now we're coming to the end of the sermon, not mine, the sermon of Hebrews. I'm just getting started. Please be patient. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, I'm dropping into a conclusion that he's been building for more than 10 chapters now. Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says to these Jewish believers who are under pressure to rebuild relationships, to be welcomed back into their families, maybe to get a job back, certainly to get prestige back. I'm going back to the synagogue. I'm going back to the law. I'm going back to the priest. He says to them, verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. I'll come back to that. That's a strange phrase. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. More strangeness. I'll explain. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." 
Everybody get all of that? I don't blame you if you didn't. There's a lot there. The reason is this is a someone who is deeply expert in the Old Testament Scriptures speaking to people who were raised in Judaism and themselves deeply familiar with the law of Moses. It's filled with pictures and phrases that would have immediately made sense to them, but to us, 2,000 years later, never having been in the tabernacle, never having needed a human priest, never having needed a animal sacrifice as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, this seems confusing. Let's take it bit by bit. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that right there is revolutionary. Because the whole point of the Old Testament law of Moses is that access to God is extremely limited. And only one person a year can enter the holiest place, and he does so on behalf of the rest of the nation. He himself will only go there once. He will go with a sacrifice that he will offer, and he will stand there between God and the people, providing a momentary access and a picture of how far the priest himself and all the people more so were from this holy God. Now, look at verse 19. How are we to enter this holy place? In other words, the presence of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have what? Confidence. Who has confidence? We all do. Not one of us. Not someone born in the right tribe. Not someone selected as the high priest. Not someone who could go once a year with the right sacrifice all of these readers, all of these unworthy, wavering, fearful readers, they all have confidence to enter the holy places. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by the blood of Jesus. Because, verse 20, there is a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. That sounds violent. The reason it sounds violent is because it is. Famously, you may remember, between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a curtain. It was a physical, permanent, and symbolic representation that behind that curtain, only one man from the right tribe at the right time with the right sacrifice would enter, and as soon as he was done, he would leave for another year. You may also remember that when Jesus died, we're told in the gospel, the curtain was torn down the middle from top to bottom. Do you remember reading that in the gospel at any point? Why is that included? Because it is a picture that that old system has now been fulfilled. And now access is granted to anyone through, verse 19, the blood of Jesus. Because there is a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh. It sounds violent because what the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers is, you now have full and confident access to God, not through ritual, not through human priesthood, but by the very offering of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you, and the gates have been thrown wide open. The curtain is torn. You can come in not cringing, but with confidence verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, let's go to God with full confidence that we belong there 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, does that mean you needed to have a shower or a bath with distilled water before you came here? No. These are more Jewish word pictures. Jewish worship was regulated. It involved the sacrifice of blood and the continual washing of the priests as a picture of something they trusted God to do internally. And those word pictures are strange and foreign to us, but very familiar to them to convey this simple idea. You have been cleaned on the inside, and it's as if you were perfectly acceptable. Go see your father with complete confidence. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 4, and you'll see a more familiar passage. Perhaps that will bring all of this together. Hebrews chapter 4, please. Verse 14, same idea. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. In other words, not an earthly tabernacle or temple. Jesus Christ himself entered the very place of God, the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Don't miss verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you get the picture? You have been provided through Christ access to God. So he says in verse 23, wrapping up his argument, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For those of you who are note keepers, how many of you are note keepers? Let me simplify this for you. If you have your handout, let me make it really simple. What we're being told here is in times of stress, in times of persecution, when we are tempted perhaps to draw back in our allegiance to Jesus, the way that we persevere is this. We draw near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. What we do continually to persevere in times of great difficulty is we continue to draw near to God through the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for you. You're being told this good news that you have access to God. And that access, if you're keeping notes, is personal because it came at the cost of the life of Jesus. It is perfect because he is your priest standing before God and it is permanent. He who promised is faithful. This may seem like old news to you if you have been a believer for very long, and frankly, I hope that it does sound like old news, but I don't want you to lose the wonder of it. You can speak to the creator of the universe and the judge of every human heart and the one who alone in all the universe is perfectly holy. You can speak to him at any time in any condition with all of your sins on your conscience and be heard as his own beloved daughter, as his own beloved son, so long as you trust the Savior, so long as you have Jesus as your priest, so long as you have Jesus as the one who brings you into the holy place. You have access. 
What I'm trying to tell you is this, the historic death and the ongoing life of Jesus allow you to draw near to God. Jesus died in history, but he is even now your high priest. Let me be practical and I'll move on. The reason Christians do not draw near to God is because they feel the weight of shame and guilt in their own consciences. Is that true? And you leave your Bible closed when you most should be opening it. And when you sin again, especially if it's a familiar and besetting sin, something you have not conquered, something that God has not made right and sanctified in your life, you think to yourself, I'm the same old person that I've always been. Nothing has changed in me. He could never truly love someone like me. Are those self-accusing thoughts familiar to anybody? They are to me. I hear that internal voice all the time. If you think your internal voice is strong and accusatory, try being a pastor. It sounds like this. How dare you open God's Word and explain it to people as if you knew anything about it, living the way you live, thinking the way you do, you think, having done what you just did. That's a constant struggle. What's the answer? Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Faithful. What did God promise? He promised a Savior. And that Savior came, and according to this same book of Hebrews, He was tempted in every way just as we are, but without sin. So when you draw near to God through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, you do not draw near to someone who doesn't understand you. Whatever causes you the greatest shame and guilt in your life, Jesus understands it thoroughly because He faced that same category of temptation. If that sounds radical and unbelievable to you, I want you to marvel at the weight and the glory of the gospel. The thing that brings you the most shame, the thing you would least want someone else to know about you, the thing you most hate about your behavior and your thinking and your attitudes. Jesus was tempted in every way, this book says, just as you are, but with this great difference. He never disobeyed God. He felt the weight of that temptation in a way that you never have. He was tempted more greatly than you have ever been, but unlike you, he obeyed God perfectly in your place so that when you approach God, you per- permanently, personally, sacrificially, and perfectly have someone who completely understands what you're telling him. So the admonition is simple hold on to Christ. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, this hope that we confess to the world, this hope that we present and claim to have to the world, that's what confession means in this case. It doesn't mean a confession of admission to wrongdoing, but rather the hope that you tell people you have in the world. Hold on to that. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And folks, before I move on, let me tell you this. It's not happening according to national surveys. The American Bible Society does a Bible reading survey every year. Since the pandemic began, they discovered that people who before the pandemic were engaged, faithful readers of the Bible have read the Bible less since the pandemic started. Bible reading is at 
a historic low in the time they have been doing the survey. In other words, people are doing exactly the wrong thing in their time of great need. So what do we do? We draw near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. We open up God's Word, and we let God speak to us. We open our mouth confidently, not because we're self-confident, but because we're Jesus-confident. We open our mouths confidently in prayer, trusting that we will be heard with love and perfect empathy by God because Jesus was tempted and died in our place to save us from the very things that tempted us and lured us into sin. You couldn't possibly be more loved and accepted in Christ than you are already. And if you haven't trusted Christ, if you're watching at home or you're sitting here in the parking lot, if you haven't trusted Christ, there is no other hope for you. There is no one else coming. There is no one that can understand you. There is no one who can sacrifice for you. There is no one who can bring you into the presence of God aside from Jesus Christ. Only He kept the law of Moses. Only He fulfilled all the prophecies. Only He can keep all the promises. That's why it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. God is faithful. The question is whether you will draw near in repentance to be saved, and if you're already saved, whether you will continue to draw near to God through the wide-open family access you've been granted. Clear enough? And then we come to verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, the scene changes. We've been in the throne room of God. We've been observing Jesus as the high priest. Now, it's back down to us. It's back down to a congregation. And the people receiving this letter were almost certainly not meeting in a dedicated church building. They were meeting in homes. They were meeting in small places. They were perhaps still going to the temple in larger outdoor gatherings to hear the gospel, hear the word of God through the teaching of the apostles, through the explanation that the Old Testament was a picture and a promise of everything that Jesus had already done for them, and receiving perhaps an apostolic letter from Paul or from Peter explaining and reminding them of all these things. The Christian church began with Jesus himself. Jesus started the church with the apostles, through the apostles. Now, across the Roman Empire, churches are spreading and congregating. The dedicated church building is not going to exist until a few centuries later, but there are congregations sprouting up everywhere with this difficulty. Everywhere Christians have gone, persecution has followed. And I'm reminded of a revival meeting, well, an evangelistic meeting actually in a difficult place in central Mexico where the church worked for three months to invite people to a little apartment so that I could present the gospel. And during the last song, I decided to change my sermon because no one who wasn't part of that church came. And what is explained to me, the reason no one comes as much as we've prayed and as hard as we've worked is people often have rocks thrown at them on their way over to this apartment because they know this is where we meet as a church. There was pressure. There was social, physical, financial, familiar pressure not to congregate, to let go first of Christ and then to each other. And what we're being told here, number two, 
The way to persevere is not only to draw near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus, but number one, number two, to draw close to other believers in our congregation, in our church family. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a call to perseverance that works vertically and horizontally. Vertically, believers are under pressure. The first mandatory thing you must do is to draw near to God with the access that God has provided through the sacrifice of His Son. And I've already told you that is faltering. According to this national survey, Christians in the privacy of their homes torn out of their routines, under the pressure of additional child care, under the pressure perhaps of losing a job or losing income and all the disruption that came into our lives. Has anybody's life been disrupted? Mine too, just a little bit. Look where we are. We're in a tent or sitting in the sunlight next to a multi-million dollar building. Figure that out. Life has been disrupted, but the worst mistake you could make is to stop drawing near to God. Bible reading and prayer should go up. You should be in the presence of your Father more often. But Hebrews goes on to say, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. On the other hand, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does this mean? That we need to hold on not only to Jesus, we need to hold on to each other. We have an obligation to gather. And let me be clear here without being quarrelsome. As soon as these health orders went out across America, pastors in my position and other people who had leadership in the church, pastors and elders across the country took one of three stances. They said, in some cases, we will disregard the health order. We will continue to meet as we always have. Others said, we, as we have, we will comply with the health order and gather as best we can. A third option more recently is, we began complying, but now we think it's time to start civil disobedience. Those decisions are rocking the American church even as I speak. Let me be very clear. The commandment here is to not willfully neglect one another. I personally do not believe that we are yet in an Acts 5.29 moment where civil warrantance, civil disobedience is biblically warranted. People I respect deeply disagree with that, and they are leading their churches in another direction. I do not yet believe that we are being commanded to sin. When that threshold is crossed, believe me, I'll be the first to tell you in my judgment, we now find ourselves in the place of the apostles. We must now disobey and face the consequences, whatever they must be. I just don't believe we're there yet. I respect the authority of the local church and people who read their Bibles differently. In my judgment and the judgment of the pastors of this church, we are still in a place of complying with the health order, but what we cannot neglect to do is to meet with one another. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. At no point should any church, including this one, say, it's gotten a little difficult, it's gotten a little awkward, we're done meeting with each other. 
That was a response to persecution because these believers understood if I'm caught in the company of these other Christians, they'll identify me as a Christian and I'm going to have all kinds of trouble. I don't want trouble. I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. That is forbidden. To this point, you have been absolutely exemplary, though we have not been able to gather as one entire church in a single service, but let's be honest, it's been years since we've been able to do that. You have sought each other out. You have prayed for one another. You have stayed in touch in person and online and over the phone. We have not at any point, and we will never neglect to meet one another because, if you're keeping notes, we have a God-given role in each other's faith and growth. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, the life of a church is not merely a large group coming to hear one man preach. That's vitally important. That's commanded in the Bible. That it began with Jesus and continued with the apostles, where someone called and gifted to open up the Word of God to others did so. That's vital. That should never change. But that's not the whole story. I can do this. God and you will be the judge of how well I do it, but I can do this. I can open up the Bible and teach you God's Word to the best of my understanding with the clear conscience I'm trying to maintain before Christ with all of my mistakes and misinterpretations. But what I can't do is obey verse 24 for you. Look at it again. Let us consider how to stir up one another to what? To love and good works. To do that takes more than a sermon. We have a God-given role in each other's faith and growth. I'm 50 now. I've been preaching for 30 years. There is a small army of people including many of you who have no idea the influence you've had on me, your pastor, by the way you've lived your lives in the presence of God. What do I mean? I've seen how people have, for instance, adopted children and brought them into their home purely out of grace and love. I've seen how marriages in great difficulty have held on to Jesus and held on to each other. I've seen how people have parented their kids, including being in hot pursuit across the parking lot after their kids, after that little hellion destroyed part of the Sunday school. And I've seen how mom and dad lovingly brought that kid under correction and back into fellowship with God and his family. I've seen how people have borne job loss and death and persecution and injustice. And you never preached a sermon but you lived your Christian life in front of me. Sometimes it's the fragment of a conversation in a church lobby that sends me humbled because you didn't know it. It may as well have been a sermon in my life. It's a text message. It's an offering. It's a chance remark. What's happening there? The body of Christ, because it's we, not I, who together has come and drawn near to God, now comes corporately together to help one another develop in our faith and growth. And if you're keeping notes, an early symptom of a faltering faith is neglecting to meet together. Mark that. The first casualty in someone's discipleship is they stop attending church. 
because they have grown disappointed with another Christian and they've said, if Christians, if deacons, if pastors, if church members are like that, I'm good. I'm going to stay home. I've got a Bible. I've got YouTube. I've got all that I need. That is a uniquely American and 21st century to a 21st century solution to a problem, and it has only this limitation. It's utterly unbiblical. Folks, church cannot become a TED Talk. You know what a TED Talk is? TED Talks are 20-minute speeches generally given by world-class experts who give the speech of their life and walk off the platform. I've watched probably 50 of them. The body and the bride of Christ, which is the local church where He is the head and we are individually members, is much more than an audience. It is more than a theater. It is more than biblical content, no matter how true and no matter how faithful. If, dear viewer, online, you're watching this and understanding this biblical content is all that you think of church, you're mistaken. You need this, but you need much more than this. And if you've been disenchanted, let down, betrayed, sinned against by church leaders or other Christians, please understand that's always happened. You can read the apostles, try to sort that out in almost all of their epistles. God's kids have always fought. False believers have always infiltrated the family. They have always discouraged each other. They have always made other people doubt Christ. We have to stick together, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but instead, on the other hand, encouraging one another. And look, here's the last phrase all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the closer judgment comes, the closer we need to stick together. I've been sent roughly 558 links, YouTubes, or questions regarding, are these the last days? Yes. All the more reason to stick together. There is a uniquely available solution in 21st century America with high-speed internet access and disposable income to see judgment coming and go into your bunker, literally or spiritually, and say, I'm going to wait it out. What were Christians told to do in the book of Hebrews? Don't spread out. Come together. If you think these are the last days, all the more reason to be at church, all the more reason to be assembled, all the more reason to be congregated. What I'm trying to tell you is simply this, to persevere, we need to stay close to God. We need to stay close to each other. That's the book of Hebrews. In these days, your faith will be tested. I have a national survey based on that Bible reading telling me that the faith of some has already faltered all across America. We're down to 9% in America of daily Bible readers. If you say to yourself, oh my goodness, I'm in the bigger number, no shame, no guilt, just draw near to God. Don't let that burden you for a moment with guilt, just use it to open up your Bible tomorrow Speak to your heavenly Father and make it your commitment to continue to draw near to God and also to continue to draw near to other believers. We always and only need to draw near to God first, but we also need one another.
this is the time specifically to persevere in these difficulties for us to stay close to God and also to stay close to each other. So if you're watching or you're here in this parking lot and you have no true friends in this congregation, send me an email and let's change that. I'm doing all I humanly can to keep in touch with as many people as I personally can, but the size of this congregation is well beyond me relationally. Does that make sense? The bandwidth in the brain is getting smaller as the church gets bigger. I can't keep up. But every single one of you needs a saving relationship with Jesus and a close, warm relationship with one another so that you will continue to encourage each other as the days get harder and as judgment draws nearer. Please, cross point, let's stick together and draw close to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had together. Lord, I pray, whether it's here in the parking lot or on the couch at home, if there's a single person here who doesn't know your son Jesus, I pray they would trust him right now that they would open their lives in genuine, humble confession and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I've broken your laws. I've disobeyed you. I've denied you and defied you. I've lived as if I mattered more than you do. Please forgive me and give me eternal life. Only you can do that. Only you can break those hearts. I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, this concludes our first worship service, but if you are new to our church, please send us the word welcome to this number, 714-868-7258. If you would like to trust Jesus or you have questions about how to do that, his name, the same name, Jesus, to the same number, 714-868-7258. If you need prayer, if you'd like to give, whatever you'd like to do, all of that can begin and continue online. For now, for those of you who are here, let me thank you sincerely for coming out. Let me invite you to leave through the back gate because people are going to be coming through the front gate. I am so glad that you're here. Next Sunday, we will have communion together right here. The, the communion supplies will be waiting for you. Let's come together as a church family. For now, God bless you and goodbye.